Hello and welcome to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with a panel of marine experts to answer one of your questions about sharks and the oceans. This week we have something a little bit different in that we're not talking about sharks themselves but careers with sharks, careers in marine science to be exact. At Save Our Seas, we often get a lot of questions about how to enter the world of shark science, and it can feel hard to know where to start and where to go. So we have asked three amazing women in marine science to chat to us all about their career journeys, how they started, any challenges they face along the way, and advice to any budding marine scientists out there. So on the podcast this week, we are lucky enough to have Jasmine Graham, Alifa Hock, and Dr. Catherine MacDonald. Jasmine Graham specializes in elasmobranchicology and evolution and has studied the phylo- can't say that word phylogeny of hammerhead sharks and the movement ecology of small-toothed sawfish. She is a member of the American Elasmobranch Society and the IUCN Shark Specialist Group, and she also works to support, encourage, and retain underrepresented minorities in marine science careers through her roles with Minorities in Shark Sciences and the Marseille Lace Project. Alifa Hock is an assistant professor at the University of Dhaka, a PhD candidate at the University of Oxford, and a National Geographic Photo Arc Edge Fellow, focusing on critically endangered large-tooth sawfish. She aims to improve the sustainability of fisheries in Bangladesh through gaining critical information on sawfish habitats and trade chains, and has worked extensively with local fishermen and traders to improve the reporting of bycatch through innovative cell phone systems. And Dr. Catherine MacDonald is an interdisciplinary marine conservation biologist studying shark and ray biology, ecology, fisheries and conservation. She is one of the co-founders and the director of Field School, an interdisciplinary marine science training and education program and lectures in marine conservation biology at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School for Marine and Atmospheric Science. So three incredibly accomplished scientists in very different areas and very different stages of their careers and we learn all about the research that they do and their career journeys which as we will learn are incredibly diverse there is no one way into the marine sciences our conversation is so rich and so incredibly interesting and we cover some very important topics including issues of diversity and equality in not just the marine sciences but in science in general. Catherine, Jasmine and Aletha all share some very personal stories of their own experiences and the barriers that they and others have faced when building a career in this profession. Before we dive into the episode, I just want to give a trigger warning because we do talk about some sensitive issues, including racial and gender discrimination and assault. So if you would like to avoid these references, there are timestamps included on our web summary, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. I really valued this conversation with Alifa, Catherine and Jasmine, and they have some fantastic advice for anyone wanting to dive into the world of marine science. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to them. Let's dive in to our episode. You guys do so many incredible, incredible things. Um, And I've already introduced you, but I just wondered if you could tell us 
in your own words, you know, what, what does your, what does your job entail? What is your job right now? And what does it entail? I am doing my DPhil, my PhD at Oxford right now. I'm looking at um, sustainable shark fisheries um, in the Bay of Bengal. We know that uh, in the developing countries, the fisheries contexts are quite different than the West. Um, many people depend on it. So conservation of species, which can be profitable for the pro-poor fishers is very difficult. So I am trying to understand um, how to conserve um, critically endangered, endangered, any threatened shark array species um, within this area without making it a um, problem for the fishers because um, for any conservation regime to work, um, we have to understand the vulnerabilities of the people who are the main stakeholders. Um, so my work uh, depends and work actually um, in the crossroads of those um, two themes, like trying to understand the biological vulnerability of the species and which should be protected first, and then trying to understand the social vulnerabilities of the people so that we can have um, informed conservation regime. Um, for my work, I do have to collect both sets of data. So I look at all the landings of sharks and rays that happens throughout the coast of Bangladesh in eight sites um, for about two years, three years now. Um, and I'm also interviewing and you know, running workshops with fishers to try and understand um, their aspects in these areas. Yes, yeah, so cool. I think you mentioned that you have a three-pronged approach. So yeah, can you explain a little bit about your three-pronged approach? You did mention it briefly there. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, so um, as I said, like we first need to understand what we have biologically, um, what species um, we have in our area in the Bay of Bengal. It's a very nutritive, interesting area for many species to pop. It's a very good nursery ground for many species and, and the diversity is really high. So looking at the, you know, um, that biological aspect is extremely important. The second that we need to understand the social justice around fisheries. Um, it's very, very easy in a privileged position to say, well, we need to stop fishing or we need to, you know, stop trading on such a species. And we have so many um, tools for those things. But when you are at the field, when you see these people, many of them are depending on such fisheries and there is are not many um, facilitation around um, for these fishers to adhere to good practice at sea, um, it's very normal that speech people would not be able to adhere to any of the regimes that are being proposed from the policymakers' side. And the third one is from the very political side that you need to push all this science, all this understanding to the people who have the power um, to write policies and to enact them. So you have to look at it from all the prongs and, and you know, come to that sweet point, if possible, whereby um, conservation is a success. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll we'll definitely cover that in a little bit more detail later on is just how important it is to not only, you know, conduct the research and conduct the science, but also communicate that and, and create impact with that in, in many different ways. Um, but Jasmine, the same question to you. So you have multiple different roles, um, but I wondered if first we could just talk a little bit about your research. Um, so so what does your research cover? I study a critically endangered species called the small-tooth sawfish. And what critically endangered means is that basically it's as bad off as a species can be without, going ex without being extinct. So there are very few left in the wild. Their range has shrunk dramatically. They can only be found with any regularity in two places in the world. Um, in the Bahamas, um, mostly around the island of Andros, and then in the United States, mostly in South Florida. 
And so I'm interested in studying how they move, what different habitats they're using, how they could possibly be interacting in fisheries to provide some research for the policymakers to sort of make some decisions about how best to protect these animals. So they're listed on the Endangered Species Act in the United States, which means that legally we're obligated to determine best practices for protecting these animals. And so my work is hopefully going to contribute to that, understanding where they move, what habitats they're using. In the future, policymakers can use that to determine what's called critical habitat, which are areas that are significant to the survival of a species that's listed on the Endangered Species Act. And that causes a whole cascade of effects once something is designated as critical habitat, which basically means that we have to have special considerations about anything that we do in that area that might negatively impact that endangered species. And I'm also interested in looking at bycatch, which is when commercial fishers are fishing for a certain target species, let's say they're fishing for shrimp, and they're not trying to catch a sawfish, but they do. And uh, the shrimp fishery in particular is a very high risk for sawfish because it has an extremely high mortality rate. So being dragged in a net for that long period of time causes the, the saws or the rostrums to break off. It causes a lot of stress on the animal, and so they typically don't survive. And so it's really important for us to understand where the sawfish are in relation to where fishing is occurring, particularly with the shrimp fishery, um, so that we can say, all right, so there's sawfish in these areas at these times, but maybe we can shift where fishing is occurring and effect, effectively mitigate some of the risks while, at, while not shutting down the fishery completely. So similar to what's happening in Bangladesh, we have people here, although uh, we are a, a quote unquote developed nation, we have a lot of people that depend very heavily on the ec ec economy of fishing and fisheries. And so we don't want to cause a lot of economic strife on people, but we also want to make sure that uh, we're protecting this critically endangered species. So my work is trying to sort of pinpoint where the problem areas are uh, so that we can mitigate the effects on the sawfish while also making sure we mitigate any negative impacts that would be had for the fishers that are depending on shrimp fishing for their livelihood. Amazing. And I think both of you make such an important point there that it isn't just you know, finding out what's going wrong, but it's also figuring out with the people how we make these changes and how we implement them in the best possible way. Um, but yeah, the, the sawfish is absolutely fascinating. They're really incredible looking species and really fascinating species as well. So I'm incredibly jealous of your projects. Um, but Jasmine, I, I really want to go into more detail later on about this and about the Marseille Lace Project as well. But I wondered if you could just kind of give us briefly an introduction as to what your roles are there as well. Sure. So all of the work that I do, I kind of live at the intersection of marine conservation, science education, and social justice. And the reason I live at the intersection of all of those is because I think you can't have one without the other. And so my, my social justice roles are 
to promote diversity in marine science and marine conservation, because I think for conservation efforts to be effective, that people need to understand the issues and challenges that we're facing in conservation, and that we also need to have everyone involved. And by everyone, I mean, no matter what language is your native language, no matter what culture you come from, no matter what your racial background is, no matter your uh, religion, your disabilities, anything like that. And so I do a lot of work with making sure that people have access to information and that anyone that wants to get involved in marine research or conservation can. And I do that through Marseilles and MIST. So Marseilles is the Marine Science Laboratory Alliance Center of Excellence, which is funded by the National Science Foundation. Um, and that is a program dedicated to broadening participation in marine science among underrepresented minorities. And then I do MISS, uh, which I co-founded with three others, and that is Minorities in Shark Sciences. And that has a little bit more of a specific mission of promoting shark research and conservation among women and gender minorities of color that are interested in that field. Yeah, you guys do incredible work. Um, we had Jada and Omani on an earlier podcast episode who also talked about myths and the work you guys do is just absolutely incredible. And I'll, I'll link, uh, I'll put links to everything in the show notes so people can find you um, and find out more about you. Um, but yeah, you just also had your first year anniversary in June, is that right? Correct. Yeah, congratulations. Happy Missversary, I think it was. Thank you. Catherine, if you can explain to our listeners, you know, who you are and what you do in your own words. My name is Dr. Catherine McDonald, and I am a lecturer at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science, where I am the track coordinator for the Master of Professional Science in Marine Conservation. And I'm the director of Field School, which is a marine science field training organization that I co-founded with some of my best friends. Um, and my work is mostly focused around shark and ray ecology, biology, fisheries, and conservation. Although I'm very broadly interested in questions about how we interact with the marine environment uh, and marine wildlife including questions about human wildlife conflict and wildlife tourism. And can you, can you explain to people uh, what you mean by human wildlife conflict as well? Human, human wildlife conflict is any time that um, humans and wildlife are in conflict. That's a very circular way of saying it. But uh, if you think about um, wildlife eating people's crops, wildlife um, preying on animals that we raise for food, in the case of sharks, those conflicts mostly come down to um, spatial conflicts around beaches. So things like bather protection nets or shark culls designed to avoid people interacting with sharks at beaches um, or to conflicts over fisheries. So uh, both recreational and commercial fishermen can be very frustrated by what we call depredation, right? Uh, sharks eating all are part of fish that are being caught for human use or consumption or recreation. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that interests me is how do we mitigate those conflicts or reframe them or create policies that 
create a more, a healthier relationship between people and sharks. First, before we get into our question, which is, how do I become a shark scientist? I thought the most useful place to start is kind of what we mean by what we mean by scientist in the first place. Um, so I just wanted to ask you guys, what does being a scientist mean to you? So Alifa, we'll start with you. Yeah, um, it's a very difficult question because um, so when I was growing up, um, scientists were people who were absolutely unreachable, right? So um, they're like the intellectual um, top um the the top uh, students and then had their careers as scientists um i've always been a mediocre student like i i had i was in i had so many interest in so many things but i was always looked up to like people who are in science or doing research um, to someone um with immense level of intellect and something i could never be um but when i finished my undergrad and, and did my master's and then I did my thesis. Um, and, and my supervisor for the first time said, well, now you're a scientist because you did a research and you added new knowledge. And it kind of felt like, well, it wasn't so difficult to be a scientist. It's um, finding something you want to know about, um, asking questions, adding new knowledge to that particular field. Um, and anybody can be a scientist um, if you find your passion and the questions and you find the knowledge for it. So for me, a scientist is a person who is immensely curious um, and actually is super passionate about answering some questions that they feel needs to be answered in a way that hasn't been answered before. Um, so yeah, that's a scientist for me. Well, that's such a good answer. I think as well, because a lot of people that I talk to, they're a little bit worried about maybe embarking on a career in science. Um, they think you have to be a certain type of smart. But I think just the fact that, you know, science is all about curiosity and, you know, being interested in answering a particular question rather than, you know, being hugely academically smart. So, yeah, I, I love that answer. Jasmine, I'll come to you next. To me, a scientist is someone that ask questions and tries to figure out the answer and I think that a lot of times we get wrapped up in the elitism of science and so I always like to tell people like no matter what age you are no matter what your background is no matter what schooling you have or don't have if you go out and ask questions and try to figure out the answers and follow the scientific method you're a scientist and this is something that I say a lot to folks that are in undergrad or even high schoolers that are, are thinking about going into undergrad. Um, and when I work with, with kids is that breaking down that idea that a scientist is this super duper quote unquote intelligent person, which we can argue about what that means, um, and that has a PhD and looks like this and does this all of that is it's kind of baloney. Uh, the scientific method is the scientific method and you carry out the scientific method and you are doing science no matter who you are. And so I think that uh, that's something that's really important for people to know and it makes science more accessible. It makes it feel like something that's attainable because if you have this idea that you can't possibly do science without having a formal education, that's absurd. There are people that do science uh, that have knowledge 
that is maybe not this Western idea of what science is, and they're just as valid. And so I think it's really important that we expand that definition of what it means to do science and what it means to be a scientist, uh, because we have a very narrow worldview sometimes of what science is. And I have people that say, well, at what point are you a scientist? You know, undergraduates that are, well, I'm not a scientist yet. Yes, you are. You're a scientist. Get out of here. You're just, your work is just as valid as anyone with a PhD. Uh, mm -hmm. Just That just means they had, they went to more school. Doesn't mean that they're better scientists. It just means that they have a degree that you don't have. Yeah. I so agree with Jasmine, if I may just add, because there are so many people, even in the past, you would see um, that didn't have a formal education in science, like a PhD or anything, or, or a degree of any sort, but did amazing work for where are we today is, for example, even in South Asia, in British India, and then later on, there are birders who made the first checklists of birds, weren't really scientists, but are the first people who actually made um, available and accessible through books and, and writings of what there were. Um, even in, in our belt, the first fishes that has been described are people who worked in government fisheries officers. So they, that's, that was a passion of that particular guy and described so many species. So it, it really doesn't matter um, where are you from or, or if you're trained to do something like that. It totally depends on your passion if you want to answer this or if you want to do this and, and add something new to the world. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And, and Catherine, the same question to you. What does what does being a scientist mean to you? First guess would enthusiastically endorse the answers that you've already gotten. Um, but I think that the thing that I would add is that one thing I didn't understand when I was young was that science is a team endeavor. It's a team sport. You do it with a lot of other people. You need their help. They need your help. So what I what I was saying was that I think that people tend to think there's one way to be a scientist and it's to be a PI and have a PhD and lead a lab, but don't think that you don't have working in science just because you don't fit the traditional mold of what that might look like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is something that I hope we're going to talk about throughout the episode but is just to kind of really get across the fact that there are so many different ways of doing things um, you don't always have to start in the kind of conventional way or how people expect you to begin um, so with that in mind uh, I kind of wanted to move on to talking about your your individual like career journeys um, so we all talked about the fact that you need this kind of or one of the best places to start is just to have that passion and just to have that interest um, so for you you know where did that where did that passion for sharks and the underwater world, where did that kind of really begin? So Jasmine, we'll come to you first on this one. Um, my interest in the ocean and things in the ocean came from my family. And um, so my dad and my grandmother and a lot of the people on that side of the family are fishers. And uh, we come from a coastal community, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And that's where they got a lot of their food. It's it's just an integral part of who we are uh, as a family. And it was very interesting growing up in this family because I all of my interactions with the ocean were through fishing. We didn't really go swimming in the ocean. We didn't really do anything besides fish. And I had this curiosity about what was going on in the ocean. I only saw the fish that we caught on the line 
And I would say, well, why are they here? Why do we know that the spots are going to run at this time and that this is a good time to fish in this particular spot? And there was all of this knowledge that we had as a family that I knew to be true because we were effective at fishing, but I didn't understand the why behind it. And I had a lot of questions about what was going on in the ocean because we were always at the surface. I never got to see what was happening below. And so I would always ask a bunch of questions about what was going on. And of course my family didn't know the answer because it was just something that was passed down. Well, we know that the spots run at this time and this is a good place to catch them. And uh, so I was not satisfied with those answers. So I started doing a lot of reading and, and just kind of educating myself. My dad very early on um, realized that he wasn't gonna know the answers to any of these questions that I had to ask him. So he taught me how to use an encyclopedia and got me a library card and set me all up. And so I started doing my own sort of reading and trying to figure things out. And then when I was in high school, I attended a camp where I learned that you could do marine science as a career. And all these questions that I had, there were people getting paid to figure out the answers. And I thought that was, that was awesome. So I decided that's what I wanted to do. That must have been such an amazing feeling because I remember I remember having quite a similar experience in high school where all of a sudden I realized I could actually do this for a living <laughs> and it completely it completely blew my mind that I could actually like earn money to do the thing that I actually really really love so yeah that's such a lovely story um Alifa how, how about you how was your where did your passion for sharks in the underwater world begin? Um, it, it's so different than in the story of Jasmine and in you because I actually um, brought up in a city um, where I didn't even have like an aquatic body, like a pond even nearer where I could see some water or anything like aquatic animals. So my uh, brought up like the city was like it was overpopulated there were not much natural areas to go to like parks or anything so um, and I never felt like that it was missing something because I didn't know what was there. So it was a normal student life. I, I did my um, schooling. And then in the university, I actually got admitted to do my undergrad in zoology. Um, that's something I got. Um, and thankfully, I, I got it because I didn't choose it. Um, and, um, and I was not very passionate, I would say. I just had to do my undergrad, so I started doing it. Um, right about two years later, when I was, I kind of felt like, well, I do not have a lot of direction. I'm just doing it going by the flow um, and I felt very empty I mean I felt like well why am I studying something where I do not have a lot of interest but I'm just doing it um, and then I started looking into people what people actually do when they when they were studying zoology and something like that and I found a lot of people going to the field um, either for research to bird watching to um, for, for many reasons and I started going to the field later like after third year of my studies um, and found an amazing level of peace calm and um, a sense of something near the ocean it, I never felt that before it seemed like I'm extremely insignificant in front of it but then again something um, that I want to hold on to and and from there just before I finished my undergrad this this some sort of a feeling was there that I really want to do something around the ocean um be that work be that anything else or just living by it um so I did my master's um in Oxford and unfortunately we didn't have any marine courses so I thought well I have to take it um all by myself I have to just start doing it so back in 2015 I used to go to the 
coastal areas of Bangladesh for seven days every month. I didn't have any project, any funding. I just wanted to be there and see like what really I wanted to do. So the first thing, as I saw, um, was piles and piles of sharks and rays that are being landed in one corner of the landing site. I studied zoology and fisheries for my master's, and I never read anything about these in my course. So it's something totally not under the radar or, or, or for research, for, for a conservation, or, or even um, understanding like we do have that. That, that, was, that was a moment um, I really thought that this is something I could really take on. And I still went there every month and collecting data, although I didn't have a research question, by the way. So I, I didn't know what I want to do, but I used to like, you know, ID the species, take photographs, take DNA samples, length, weight data. Um, and one day, um, and Jasmine would love it, I saw a sawfish rostrum as big as me. So I was interviewing one of the traders, shark traders in Bangladesh. Um, and he, he said, like, so we were showing them photographs, like, do you see these, these, these species? And he said, well, there is one species that we don't get anymore, but I do have a rostrum of it. Do you want to see it? And I saw it because we used to believe that we do not have sawfish anymore in Bangladesh. Um, and I saw this, the rostrum was as big as me. Just imagine how big this specimen might have been. And um, and he said like it was caught last month which means they're still there in Bangladesh somewhere nobody really looked at them and that's how my sawfish project and the shark project started where I really wanted to know like if we still have sawfish in in Bangladesh where are they where are the critical habitats what are the fisheries interaction with them the bycatch patterns and then trying to understand the barriers of the fishers to um, release a sawfish alive um, so that's how it all started yeah in 2016. Wow I mean yeah I mean that'll definitely do it is finding a, a rostrum that's the nose part um, as big as you are <laughs> and kind of being like I want to find out where that animal is. Yeah so that's amazing that's exactly what we were talking about and that you can find that passion quite you know early on in life or it can develop you know later in life and neither neither is right or wrong. Um, so Catherine just coming to you now so what kind of sparked your passion for sharks in the underwater world and you know how did that kind of evolve into a career in science? I was um, running around on the beach at my great-grandparents house uh, when I was probably about seven years old and somebody angling from the beach caught a, quite a small bonnet head you know maybe two feet long and all of the adults on the beach started freaking out about the fact that this shark was in the water with their children who were swimming. And I kind of wandered up as you do at seven, just kind of inserting yourself into situations where you don't have any business <laughs> and looking at all of these like extremely worked up adults who were undecided about whether it was safe to put it back in the water or whether they should kill it. And, you know, looking at this like sad little gasping two foot shark, it seemed really clear to me who was in danger there. And it wasn't people. Um, and that's pretty much how I've felt about it ever since. That uh, it's, it's very obvious to me that if, if there's a risk here, it's not to humanity. And that if somebody doesn't do something on behalf of sharks it's not going to end well for them yeah um i couldn't yeah i couldn't agree more and you know sharks they are such misunderstood creatures as well 
Um, they get such a bad rep in the media. And, you know, we talk about that, you know, all the way through this podcast. And um, so how did you then, how did you then take that, that idea and that interest and that passion? And how did that become a career uh, in scientific research? I mean, even as a small kid, I would say I was on the side of the underdog. And so I kind of came into it seeing sharks as this almost ultimate underdog. Uh, it's hard to be more misunderstood than I think sharks are. Um, and honestly, I, I kind of tripped and fell into my career. It, you know, for students who don't feel like they have a clear direct pathway from where they're starting to where they hope they end up, I can tell you for sure that I didn't. Um, you know, I worked for a year for a wild bird rescue. I worked for two years on a dolphin tourism boat. Um, those experiences inform the work that I do now. I learned a lot from them, but there was no straight line for me from, wow, sharks are really in trouble and they seem like a thing that I care about to what I'm doing now. It's always one step at a time, figure it out as you go. Um, and one of the things that I tell students too is, you might have some idea where you think you want to wind up, but a lot of the time that's not, it's your vision of what that would be like. It's not a, a picture of a real thing. And so listen to yourself as you go. And if, as you're, you know, moving forward through your life, you're like, wow, but I also really love this. Like, don't be like, oh no, no, no. But the plan is to do X, Y, like, hear yourself when you're hearing what you care about, because for me, that's often taken me in the most interesting directions. You know, we're talking about plans here. You can have a plan with the best intention in the world. Um, but science has a habit of not always going to plan. Um, so one thing I was wondering is, you know, did any of you face any kind of challenges or, you know, setbacks along the way or, you know, kind of as you progressed through your career in research, you know, how, how did that kind of, how did that journey look for you? Like, where did the, you know, was there anything that sort of pushed you in a slightly different direction or, you know, has it always been quite a linear trajectory? And uh, Jasmine, I wondered if I could come to you first. Um, so we kind of left you going into school with all of that knowledge that was given to you, you know, by your family and then also, you know, going, getting your library card and things like that. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, what happened after then um, and how, did you face any challenges or setbacks along the way? Yes, there were challenges, setbacks, redirections. Um, so I, I got, when I decided I wanted to do marine biology, I, I knew that I wanted to go to college. And so I guess my first challenge that turned into an opportunity um, I was super obsessed with going to Duke University because the only person in my family that had ever gone to college before me um, on my dad's side was my cousin, Chessie. And she went on to be a doctor and that's what my family knew. Like you went to college to be a doctor. And so I guess the first initial challenge was overcoming that you go to college to be a doctor mindset and saying, I wanna go do this other thing that no one has ever heard of. My parents honestly weren't super convinced that it was a real thing, but they're very supportive people. And they said, go for it, uh, but maybe don't go for it too much. Maybe have a backup plan. And so originally they had suggested that I major in biology. 
so that I could go the marine biology route, but also if I came into the realization that that actually wasn't going to be something that you could make money doing, then I would have the biology degree to then go be a doctor. That was the, that was the thought process. And um, so that was the thing that was, um, I wouldn't say an obstacle, but it was something that uh, I was going against the grain a little bit. And then um, right before I was going to go to college in my senior year, my cousin was murdered. And I went to Duke to go tour and I just, it didn't feel right. Um, it, it, it felt like I was gonna have this extra mental strain of knowing that she walked the same halls and everything mm -hmm. like that. And mm -hmm. then also the, the university had some, some racial tension issues. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that in applying to Duke and going through that whole process and ultimately making the decision not to go to Duke, I learned a lot about myself. So I had a experience where we had a Black Student Alliance Invitational where they invited all of the accepted uh, Black students. And one of the things that they did was a panel discussion. And I remember very clearly, uh, you know, we we're talking about the racial issues that exist at Duke and they, they did do a good job of warning us of, of what we were gonna be walking into. But I remember very clearly someone in the panel saying, you're gonna be black first and foremost. And so connecting with your identity instead of pushing your identity away is going to make you stronger. You're initially going to feel like you need to shed that. And I'm gonna tell you that hold on to it tightly, don't let it go. And that's something that I've carried with me. And that's one of the reasons why um, I went on to co-found Miss. It's something that's very important to me. So that was one of the big things. And then I carried that with me while I was at the College of Charleston, which I ultimately decided to go to for financial reasons and the reasons that I just described. And I was at College of Charleston when the Mother Emanuel massacre happened. I was a block away. I had to walk by that church every day to go to class after that happened. And that was something that I said, uh, this is a thing. This is what they're talking about. You're going to want to push it away. You're going to want to say, I just got to keep going, but you need to acknowledge that this hurts you as a Black person, that someone went and killed people just because they looked like you. And so that really helped me carry myself through undergraduate and grad school, holding on tightly to my identity and not letting that be something that I felt like I had to get rid of to be a scientist. And so that's some of my big obstacles in undergrad. In grad school, uh, I went straight from undergrad to grad school. Definitely should have taken a break between. I definitely experienced some burnout. Uh, my very first day of graduate school, I didn't go to class because I had a panic attack in the parking garage. Um, I started doing some, um, going to group therapy and, and working one-on-one. -on -one. Um, with a counselor to, to kind of handle my anxiety and depression issues that I was going through in graduate school. But I definitely had a month period where I absolutely just shut down towards the end of my master's degree. And that was really hard to get over. But thankfully, I had a really strong support system to get through that. But uh, a lot of that was the stress of going through graduate school, the stress of being Black and a woman and going through graduate school, the stress of people kind of going out of their way to hurt me and my professional career because of whatever reasons that I'm not going to try to 
explain why they felt that way, but they did. Um, and so that was a lot of things that I had to overcome. And I got out on the other side of it and I decided I wanted to make everyone else's journey easier. Uh, and that's why I started working with Marseille Lace and started Miss. Wow. I mean, I firstly, I just want to say I'm so sorry that you went through those experiences. Um, such an incredibly, incredibly hard thing to go to. And thank you so much for sharing that with us as well. I mean, there'll be, I hope there's a lot of people listening that can maybe relate to some of those experiences, but just also, you know, so amazing that you have turned those experiences into something so incredibly positive with Miss and Marseille Lace as well. Um, which again, you know, we'll, we'll come to a little bit later on, but no, thank you so much for sharing those experiences. And it's so different for person to person. Um, it's it, with the same experience, a different person would react and deal with differently. But one thing unmistakably will always help is to seek help from people from similar mindsets, from families, from friends, um, and try and talk about it, uh, no matter how much it um, drags you down. To be able to share is sometimes half the battle won. Um, for me, I like I'm really sorry about hearing what Jasmine had to go through. It's it's a lot of trouble. Um, and look at her now, what she has become and, and took all those experiences and made something so positive and so so something so look forward to. Um, such an inspira inspirational journey. Um, for me, it was mostly to fight a lot of uh, societal um things that that Asian society would have in terms of what you need to study, how you need to be as a woman, what you can be as a woman um, that are so set um, in the ideologies of people that anything that are done beyond those lines, uh, something that shouldn't have been done. Um, my way of adapting to those was um, identifying people and ideas who were not academically intellectually or emotionally helping me. I chose my battles by um, identifying them that, well, I do not have the time to entertain that particular thing, no matter who or what that is. And this is a problem I want to um, engage in and deal with. Um, so there were a lot of questions coming in my ways whereby people actually asked like, well, did you really go to the field? Did you really be in, in there for such a long period of time? Because it's a male dominated um, fishing society. You're a woman alone going there and you're saying you have been there for such a long time. Is it really true? These are very insulting questions, even in conferences or, or you know, in, in, in groups, groups of other scientists, which is very male dominated. Um, so I decided, well, if this question is not helping me intellectually or emotionally in any way, either I just put a blind eye or if I can really engage, I do answer them in a way so that they also learn what is sensitive and what is insensitive. Um, so whenever there are students or, or people who come to me for, for advice in terms of if they're interested in marine sciences in Bangladesh, especially girls, um, the one thing I always tell them is that, well, your capacity is something what you can make of you. It's never going to be someone else tells you like, this is what you can be or stuff like that. And always choose your battle. You do not need to engage in every battle that's come your way. Um, but of course, don't be stopped by those um, 
either. Um, so yeah, it totally depends on person to person. In Bangladesh, there's another thing like that that was difficult for me, but then again, I took it as an opportunity as well. Um, in the fishing communities, they believe that a woman, if boarding on a fishing trawler or a boat, it's an omen, you can't get fish anymore. So it's very difficult to work um, in fishing boats. But then again, this is a belief that has been there and has a lot of underlining social systems that I couldn't have addressed right away. Um, what I did was I kept talking to them. I kept being in the societies without being intruding anything, um, without being very aggressive or trying to change what they believe. I just went there, tried to be there, help, help them if possible, have conversations. Um, in two years time, these people are the people who actually asked me to board on a boat for my survey because they thought, well, I am not a threat. So that's something um, like a social system needs a long time and a lot of different sorts of, you know, things to change to a positive direction. Um, but either you could take it as an opportunity and try to change what you can in that particular um, way, or just be at it, um, if that makes sense. So uh, adaptability is something, of course, you need a lot of uh, help from friends, families, similar-minded people, but it, it needs to come from you as well, that you need to learn and identify um, how and what problems I'm gonna solve and how to engage with them. I would say first that I admire both of the women that I'm lucky enough to be uh, sharing this interview with tremendously. Um, but I want to add beyond that, that walking away from a harmful situation is not weakness. Perseverance in the face of abuse is not strength necessarily. I, you know, it, it takes a lot. Um, as somebody who early in my career, I was assaulted at work at my first scientific conference. I've been in those really grim places as a woman in science, and I don't, I don't want to send students the message that that is the toll that you pay, that is the bridge that you cross to become a scientist. It's okay to say it's not okay to treat me this way, and to walk away. And that sometimes opportunities where you're being treated that way aren't real opportunities. Mm -hmm. right? Uh, you can find yourself in situations where on paper, it seems like it's a great job. It's a great fellowship. It's a great um, lab for you to be in. But if in practice, it's not giving you the chance to learn the skills you want to learn, it's not uh, a circumstance in which you're being treated with respect. You do not have to stay. And I think that students often feel like, this is my last chance. This is my only chance. If I want to do this and I want it so badly, this is what I have to do. Mm -hmm. And having watched students go through experiences that I am deeply unhappy about, um, I, I want them all to have heard from me. Firstly, that the way other people treat you reflects on them, not on you. Uh, if somebody treats you cruelly, abusively, it's not because you're not good enough, it's because they're not good enough. Um, and secondly, that there's nothing wrong with walking away from a situation. Uh, however inspirational those of us who have kind of fought our way through might seem to you, you should not have to do that. And I think all three of us are out here trying to make sure that you don't have to do that. Um, but not, not staying, not air quotes, making it in shark science. I know so many students who have walked away, 
like full of shame or regret or this feeling that like they couldn't hack it. And I, I want to push back on that narrative because choosing yourself is never, ever not succeeding. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Um, and, you know, again, thank you so much for sharing such personal experiences um, and, you know, talking about them in so much depth and so much detail. Um, just, I just so appreciate it. And yes, and like tremendous awe of all of you, you know, regardless of whether you decide to perhaps try and make changes or make something out of it or choose to remove yourself from that situation, you know, it's an unfortunate reality and it's, it's nothing to, it's not your fault at all. It's, it's, it's a fault of the, the other people and the fault of the system. Um, and, you know, while we're on this subject, I want to talk about this a little bit because you can't talk about science without referring to the, you know, massive issues we have around diversity, around representation, around equality. Um, and so we're already sort of talking about this a little bit, but I just wanted to you know, talk in more depth about what steps can be taken to make science a more accessible, supportive and inclusive space for everyone. Um, and, and, you know, Jasmine, I want to come to you first on this uh, and, you know, talk about, you know, not only what Marseille and what MIST do, but, you know, also what the wider scientific community can do as well. Yeah, so going kind of going off of what Catherine just said, um, I started Miss because I didn't, I didn't really want to do science. Well, I did want to do science anymore. I just didn't want to be part of science anymore uh, because of how it was. And so uh, the decision to make Miss was a lot of, so there's, there's this idea of this metaphorical table and everyone should have a seat at the table. And sometimes you got to pull up your own chair, but sometimes you need to just leave the table and go build your own table. And so I just looked at that table of shark science and I said, that is awful. That's not a place I want to sit. That's not a place I want other people to sit. I'm going to go build a better table, a bigger table where everyone is welcome and no one has to feel that way. And that table is miss. And I know that a lot of people in shark science feel threatened that I went and created a table. And people have said this to me, people have said it behind my back and has gotten back to me. And to that, I say, you could make your table better. If you wanna compete with my table, make your table better. I don't want to have to go make another table. That is not what I set out to do. I wanted to do science. You made it about me being black and a woman. I didn't make it about that. You made it about that whenever you decided to treat me like that and have those kind of issues as part of your whole structure. <laughs> so um, I, I ultimately, people say, well, what is your goal for Miss? My goal for Miss is that one day Miss doesn't need to exist. I hope that one day everyone gets their act together at that other table and they make a table just as good as Miss and we can all combine tables and Miss doesn't need to exist. But until that happens, Miss is going to exist because I got tired of having people feel like they had to put up with that nonsense to sit at that table and I wanted to provide an alternative, that there is another way to do this. There is a better way to do this. There is, you do not have to go through all of this to be in shark science. That should not be a prerequisite. And I think that that's great, but that that is 
is us kind of exiting, making our own thing. What I really want to see is that the people that are at that table, you know, come and visit our table, see what's happening, and then go apply that to the original table. Uh, I, I think that for things to change, people that have power and have privilege have to start talking about these things. It's really easy to ignore it when it doesn't affect you. It's really easy to pretend it's not happening when you don't see it. It's really easy to turn a blind eye. And what I like to tell people is if you are in a position of power, if you are a dean or you are a PI or you are a faculty member and you see this happen and you do nothing, you are just as guilty of it. And every time you see a woman or a person of color or someone from the LGBTQ plus community or something like someone from a marginalized community speaking out, everyone wants to say, oh, that's so inspirational. That's so bold. And I go for every person that did that. There were hundreds of people that could have been allies to stand up for that person so they didn't have to be the ones to do it that didn't do it. So every time I see someone speak out, I think about all of those people that had to know that that was happening. Like I know how much it takes mentally to speak up and say something about that. And so for someone to get to that point, that means that everyone else in their life has failed them. And that's not okay. I, I totally agree with Jasmine. And and um, I'll, I'll just give one example that, that resonates with me when you ask the question. So for example, when um, people look for a field biologist um, in, in my side of the world, um, automatically they would think of a man than a woman um, because there are social perceptions and expectations which are very different from what you, what you have for a woman and a man. And you immediately probably would say, even in the um, advertisement that you are looking for a male field biologist whereby they have to do this, this, this and that. Although you know that um, a girl or, or a woman in the same area might have the same expertise, same passion, same sort of um, urge to learn the skill sets. Now, when you do something like that and, and create a discrimination, being in a position of power and privilege whereby you can decide who gets the job, um, that's a hugely bad thing. You are creating a very discriminated opportunity um, kind of a thing. And when you do that for a long period of time, you're losing a whole, whole generation of women scientists or field biologists who are not getting the skill sets that they could have got, got or, or they deserved, um, even if it were a competitive, you know, a selection process. There were requests even sent out to me that they're looking for a student who would do something like that and they're preferring a male. I personally don't... Um, you know, like engage in some such sort of a request, because if I had to, um, you know, suggest or refer to someone, I'll entirely do that on the basis of who would do it best. Another thing, um, which is very true to uh, our part uh, where I work is, is the safety issue, the social safety issue. For a girl to work at night in a field site is actually risky because you have, you're exposed to so many different sorts of um, criminal offenses. Um, now the question comes again, the person who is catering the job or, or the PI or who is doing it, if that person or, or that team is not being able to ensure the security, that also a bad thing that they're doing and keeping a blind eye to it. They're thinking, well, we can't do that. We are scientists. We, we are not, you know, 
Um, so the social expectations that you have in, in the global south for a woman and for a man is so different that actually is curtailing an equal opportunity um, options for both genders and somehow it's, it's, although nobody's looking at it, but that's actually keeping girls in science somehow not getting the skill sets they need to go to the next step. Um, these are the things that we need to think like more cautiously whenever we are writing a project or stuff like that, whereby diversity in terms of gender and other aspects are very, very importantly looked after and then in selection of who is working with you, who can work with you um, and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, there's so many other stuff, but that's what I wanted to share. It's yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There, There is so much. I mean, we're all at quite different stages in our career as well. We all have very different backgrounds. Um, but for people who are sitting at home who are like me, they're from a white middle class background and they're sort of wondering, you know, what can, what can I do to sort of help this situation? There are so many things you can do. You can put pressure on your institution. You can share information. You can educate yourself. You know, there's a lot of things and I'm so thankful to you guys for coming on and, and sharing your experiences and helping to help other people understand a different perspective. Um, but Catherine, I wanted to come to you and ask a little bit about the, the field school. So you di you're the director of the field school as well. So I wanted to ask the same question to you, but kind of from the perspective of, of a director. Yeah, so I come at this from a slightly different angle as a relatively privileged white person who is in a faculty role at an R1 university, right? I'm a lecturer at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. I direct field school. I directed field school first, right? I, we founded it uh, when I was in graduate school. But from our very earliest days, we included at least one scholarship student on every single course we run. And I was talking to some senior faculty members about this and they were like, oh, that's great. That's wonderful that you're doing that. How are you getting paid to do that? And I was like, guys, take some responsibility. Take a look at yourself. I'm not getting paid to do that. In fact, if we don't have the money to pay my salary, I don't get a salary but this is more important, right? This is, this is about what your priorities are, not about, you know, how do I get rewarded for being, you know, publicly air quotes, part of the solution here, right? And so I think that a lot of it comes down to this very broadly applicable sense in academia that it shouldn't cost us anything to do the right thing, but that's not how doing the right thing normally works. It, it does cost things, right? And, and the people who should be paying those costs are the people who can. And I say as like an early career person who is not in an, a special position of power, um, if I'm doing it, don't tell me that you tenure track faculty, don't tell me that you senior scientist can't possibly do what I'm managing to do, you know, at a time when I was a graduate student. Uh, so part of it is saying, oh, these problems are structural, and so I'm not responsible for them. And I think that if an awful lot of scientists who have given themselves a pass on this stuff for a long time stepped forward and said, I'm not solely responsible for this, but it doesn't mean that I don't have any responsibility here, we would be in a much better position than we actually are. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I just I just love this conversation. I think it's just so important to talk about. Um, and one thing I did want to to touch on. So we've kind of talked about, you know, the institutions and sort of that angle. But I wondered if, you know, if any of you wanted to give some advice to someone from an underrepresented group. So say, for example, a, a person of color or a, a young woman or, you know, someone who wants to get into uh, the field of science. Um, if there is any piece of advice you would like to give to them. So one thing I would like to start on uh, in kind of with this question is, you know, where do you even begin? And uh, so that's a question that I get asked a lot from especially, you know, young women is how do I even start kind of on the ladder? So I just wanted to, you know, ask you guys kind of any advice that you have relating to that. Okay, I'll I'll go. So um it's it's a very interesting question because it's for a student who have just freshly graduated or probably still still school, um, it is it is somewhere it's it's always find very intimidating in terms of where to start if I want to do something like that. But luckily at this point of time, then for example, 10 years ago, things are more accessible. Um, people are actually an email away. So I would suggest that be extremely vocal about what you really um passionate about or you have an idea or if you want to do something just write a simple email to that person well maybe five person wouldn't answer to you but trust me at least two would um, and you might just get a start in terms of collaborating with that person be being uh, helping that person or you know carving out your own ideas there are a lot of um uh, like institute who actually give trainings and and um mentorship to young students. Um, I am always in need of some volunteers or, or research assistants who would help me out not only to do what I am set out to do, but then again, have a fresh perspective on things. Um, there have been so many like situations whereby um, someone in my team had a much better way of doing something than I was doing. And it was so amazing to have those people in my team. It only, um, it, it became very collaborative and, and we were so open for anyone doesn't matter from where what age what background they had in my team people where there are people who are from business background and have amazing ideas about campaigns and how to do you know deal with those I have people from biology background and I have people from without any um, formal um, education background but they wanted to work with us and now they're working amazingly in different capacities so um, for young people just don't feel that anything is not accessible to you. You have to try, just write an email, put a post, um, follow people you think who are inspirational and see if there is an opportunity um, or just find your own group. Even within the school or the or these institute you're in, there'd be at least a few more people who are thinking in the same way you are, but probably nobody have been vocal. Um, find a little group of yourself and be vocal about it and. I don't think it would be so difficult to be um, engaged in with someone who who had a similar mindset. If that is even not possible, which was the case for me at the beginning, because I couldn't really find anyone in Bangladesh who was doing shark science, I just did it by myself. I just went there and I started it. I wanted to do it no matter what. Um, and that actually led me to ask so many questions I never knew that I could have done um, and reached me to where I am right now although I'm not in a position of power privilege uh, at this point I wouldn't say but I, I at least found my passion so 
it's really possible. You just have to be vocal and keep at it, um, what you want to do. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's such that's such good advice as well. Um, Catherine, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I would say in part that like you're already on your path. Uh, students will often be like, oh, well, I have this whole degree in education and it's useless, right? Because I want to be a shark scientist. And I'm like, well, hold up. No, it's not useless. It's the, it's the thing that differentiates you from other people who share similar interests, right? If you're a gifted artist, that's, that's a talent that you bring to this work. So don't start from the premise that you have to change yourself or that you have to transform yourself somehow. Start from the premise that you are your own best resource, right? And what, what are the unique talents, perspectives, and knowledges that you have to bring to the table? Um, but other than that, I, I would say very strongly, find your people. Um, you know, similarly, uh, it's, it's very hard to do anything meaningful alone. And support can come from a lot of different places. I think that, you know, Twitter can be a tremendous resource for young scientists. Um, but more than that, those are the people who will pick you up when you need to be picked up off the mat. Uh, I wouldn't still be a scientist if it wasn't for some of my friends and collaborators. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you make a really good point there and that social media has made it so much easier to connect with people. And I mean, Miss even started on Twitter. Is that right, Jasmine? Yes, we, uh, all of the co-founders, we met each other on Twitter and Catherine found us on Twitter because we were joking on Twitter about starting a club. And Catherine said, you can have meetings on our boat. And then that's kind of how Miss was was born. I, I just wanted to add something go that Jasmine it. just sparked for me. Yes, go for um, it. Yes. Which is think about think about what you can give, not what you need. Mm -hmm. Right. I I always really struggled with networking when I was early in my career when I was a student because I felt like I had nothing to offer. Right. I wanted to talk to these people who had more power, who had more knowledge, who had more experience. And I didn't I didn't feel like I brought anything to the table. Um, so think about what you can offer, even if what you can offer is just your curiosity, is just your passion. As somebody who now has a lot of knowledge and experience, a student offering you those things is a real gift, right? So, so don't come at your interactions with anybody from the perspective of what can you give me and how can I get it from you? Uh, come to it from the perspective of like, what can I offer and what can we build together? Um, so we have covered an awful lot of ground today, um, but I just wanted to kind of draw things to a close and ask everybody, you know, what is next for all of you? Um, so Jasmine, we'll come to you first. Uh, so what kind of things are you are you going to do in the future? I don't know. I'm going to see where the wind blows me. That's kind of how I live my life is uh, I, it's in terms of my research, I basically just pay attention, make observations, and then I see something intriguing and I go try and figure out what's going on with that. That's one of the reasons why I'm an independent researcher because 
I don't want someone to, to tell me that I need to stay in some sort of box. Uh, so I like to do some, I guess, what one of my friends calls rogue science, where I just kind of go off on a little tangent, like, oh, look, that software is doing something weird over there. Let me go see what's happening with that. Um, so that's, that's what, I, in terms of my research, how I'm going to be doing. And in terms of my conservation efforts, similar things, I'm going to, wherever I feel I'm needed most and I can be most helpful uh, is, is where I'm going to be doing things. Uh, so right now I, I just became part of the IUCN shark specialist group. So hoping to get more involved with the assessment of some uh, Lasma Frank species in terms of my social justice, I am going to go until I am done. Uh, I know that doing social justice work is, is a uh, short journey for a lot of people just because of how much it takes out of you and I am going to affect as much change as I can um, and then pass the baton on to the next person. Awesome. Congratulations, by the way, on, on getting onto the IUCN Shark Specialist Group. That's really cool. Um, and yeah, I absolutely love the rogue scientist uh, rogue scientist position. I think that's amazing. But to bring it back full circle, when we were talking about what it means to be a scientist, you know, we were saying exactly that. It's sort of finding a little tangent and sort of pursuing that for a little while and then moving on to the next one. Um, so, yeah. So, Catherine, how about you? What's next for you? Uh like Jasmine, I never want to be too sure about what's coming next. You just take the step that's in front of you. But uh, as always, you know, the center of my work is trying to create a home for people, uh, a scientific home and a place where they know that they are valued and belong. And so I'll continue doing that through my teaching work at the University of Miami uh, field school will always be trying to do that for students who want to learn field research skills. Um, and I, I agree with Jasmine that it takes a lot out of you. It's, it's tiring, but it's also the greatest gift in the world to watch students thrive under that environment and to see what they go on to do. So um, I can't really see myself doing anything else. That's where you'll find me. It's tiring work, but it's absolutely necessary. And, you know, the more of us that do it, the more the more of us can share that burden. So, so yeah, I think it's incredible work that you're all doing. And, and Alife? Yeah, so the first thing that I need to finish my PhD in time, hopefully. Um, no, but um, seriously, I... So it has been a long standing dream of mine to have a lab and it is materializing the last few months. So we probably would be starting within my uh, university, the first Elasmo lab. So um, that's the first thing we want to do by this year, um, where we formally start doing our researches in collaboration with a lot of people. Um, we are looking, we are really interested to actually open a field school in Cox's Bazaar, um, which is one of the biggest um, hub for shark landing in, in, in the Bay of Bangladesh. And of course, in the Bay of Bengal area, whereby we want to actually house a lot of young scientists, not only from Bangladesh, but from South Asia, um, to do research in this area, 
which which has been extremely data poor for decades now and i don't want to write in any of my paper that this area is data poor anymore um so that's and um we very recently for the first time actually um put all our shark data for more than 40 50 species in the iucn red list assessment for 2020 as an assessor and um that was that was amazing um because so far in all the assessments none of the data from bangladesh or in this area was ever included in those assessments um and lastly i just want to be in this path um the way i'm going I, I just want to be able to do what I do um, if, if everything is all right. And I really want to um, accommodate people um, who have gone through a journey like me in my country, um, a woman, man, doesn't really matter, um, who would feel like, well, I have an idea and it's very difficult for, for me to actually formulate that. I just want to create that space within that school and in this lab whereby you can come and talk about almost anything. Um, yeah, fingers crossed. Oh, amazing. I'm so excited to see that develop. It's so, so cool. Um, and just, just one final question before I let you guys go. This is the question that we ask every single guest. Uh, and it is, if you could be any species of shark and ray in the world, what would you be and why? So Jasmine, I'll come to you first for this question. If I could be any species, I would be, well, that's a good question. <laughs> I think I would be I think I would be a wabigong uh, because I think that is how I live my life um, spending minimum amount of energy for the maximum amount of time and then the maximum amount of energy for a minimum amount of time that's <laughs> the dream <laughs> that's a brilliant answer and I I love the wabigong so I'm so happy that you said that <laughs> Alifa how about you Oh God, I was just giving it a thought. Um, I can't decide between a devil ray and a guitar fish. Um, a devil ray because the amazing dance and, and the bleaching that they do. Um, and it's one of my favorite species. Um, a guitar fish because I really feel connected to a guitar fish being so naive, just roaming around in the coastal shallow waters um, and an amazing species. So I'm undecided, any of these two. That's okay. You can You can be two if you want. You can switch between the two. <laughs> and Catherine, what about you? I'm going to go with the small tooth sawfish in part because I really admire their perfect balance of being very chilled out and extremely well armed. Um, and partially because if there's one that we could use an extra of, it's the small tooth sawfish. And on that note, I just wanted to say, uh, Huge, massive thank you to all of you for such a rich and in-depth discussion and for sharing all of your perspectives so openly. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. Um, and I hope our listeners, I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of this discussion. So thank you all so much for that. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank for you. Thank you so Same much for you. having us. <laughs> I really hope that this episode spoke to some of you out there and that you enjoyed our conversation with Alifa, Catherine and Jasmine. There will be links to them and their work in the show notes, so please, please, please do go and check them out. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one and leave us a nice review on iTunes. This just helps more people to find us. 
And if you would like a question answered on the podcast or just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing isla at saveourseas.com. A big thank you to David Knight who provided our wonderful jingle and thank you to you at home for listening. I'll see you next time.